we're back. Welcome to Abstractable. I'm Lockie and with me is Ryan. So this is a podcast and it's for the entrepreneurial spirited amongst us. And in it, we distill ideas from the world's best thinkers in business, startups, psychology and other things, mainly in the forms of books and documentaries and stuff. Today, we talked about the book How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. There's no clickbait here. In this episode, we discuss the six ways to make people like you. We talk about Carnegie's tips for taking the ego out of situations. And we talk about how some things never change and how others stay the same. Because this book was originally written back in 1936. We talk about this. Well, because relationships are life and Relationships put meaning and spiciness in life. So why not learn to be good at building them? Dale is also no longer with us, uh, but you can find out more about him and his famous courses at dalecarnegie.com. And of course, don't forget, as with every episode, you can find full video from our episodes on YouTube and find our show notes uh, and some other information on episodes at abstractable.co. We hope you enjoy the episode. And we're back, Lockie. How are you going? I'm going really well. Oh, that's good I'm to very hear. hot. I'm very hot. And I take it that you are quite cool in Melbourne. Yes. What's the temperature over there? Uh, oh, hang on. No, no weather talk. I'm killing no, it. I was going to say, we, we've, no weather we've, launched, talk. We've, we've launched an episode with weather talk. No you know, COVID we, talk, no weather talk, straight into it. Tell us, Lockie. Tell, tell me about something. All right. So I'll tell you about something. I'm reading an excellent book. An excellent book. And that sounds like a strange thing, you reading an excellent book. <laughs> Christy often says to me after I finish a book, I say, that's one of the best books I've ever read. She's like, you say that about every book. So I'm easily persuaded. But this yeah, one is like, a it's like I've got I've got all my books that I've read on Goodreads and they're all five stars. <laughs> what, do, what do you do? Yeah, that's it. Um, Warhol, Andy Warhol biography. Um, I bought the hardcover just before going into lockdown. So it is 900 pages long. It's heavy to pick up. But, man, I'm enjoying it so far. You've got the hard copy? I've got the hard copy, yeah. I've gone old. No, I love old school. And is it loaded with his art? And pictures of him? Uh, not so much. It's mostly words. Um, okay. It's got a middle section with his art in it, you know, like one of those glossy bits. It's got some pictures of um, him, but mostly it's just like a normal biography. But what I am doing is it references a lot of art. It references a lot of different um, types of art and styles and, and this kind of different eras. And... Um, so I'm Googling it all at the same time and actually learning what some of it actually means. So, Are I'm, you a bit of an art it. connoisseur, Lockie? No, no, I know nothing about it. And um, so this is a good opportunity to learn. So why did you pick up the book too? What, what struck you with Andy Warhol? Well, he's just, it's so, like he's a pretty famous dude and he's just pretty out that. there. And so I thought, well, it'd be good to learn about that. And I'm interested to learn a bit more about some creative, really creative people. So 
Yeah. I did a, um, I did a, on, I think it was Coursera. I got sent an email from MoMA, so the Modern Art Museum uh, oh, yeah. over, in the, over in the States. And they were offering like a free course on contemporary art. And it was, it was really good. It was very basic, uh, but really, really good. And gave a nice kind of rounded insight into some things, all of which I've probably forgotten. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's definitely interesting because like around this time they were starting to really experiment with some out there stuff, you know. Uh, even before, like there's some of the stuff they referenced that was in like early 1900s that's still confronting today like the blank canvases and things like that you know um, that still people talk about you know it's um it's pretty cool i'm enjoying well the mate the move from realist art where an artist would be trying to portray as realistic interpretation of what he was seeing uh you know with then the invention of yeah with the introduction of different technology e.g the camera leading it down the path into this it's like well the camera's now taken everything we used to do for the kings and queens we need to find something else to do and it really just opened the world up and that Mm. that's that's where you see this explosion of abstract art and all the other various kind of forms of abstract art and the lead-ups to to abstract art it's incredible are you do you think do you feel you're a well-educated in the art space is an interest no. of yours? Definitely an interest. Just just don't know anywhere near enough about it to be able to ramble to you properly. Yeah, no. Maybe I, I'll, I do I'll have get a, there I by the end a, of the book. I do have a favourite. I think I'm a, a surrealist fan. And so Salvador Dali is I think I think he's my favourite artist. Really? He's pretty out there. Hmm. The melting clock guy. Yeah, the melting clock guy. Very cool. Yeah. I don't know. I think, like, I always thought Warhol was my favourite because that's the only one I really knew. So. Is that because you saw him in Men in Black? <laughs> what? He's in Men in Black. Come on. I think he's in Men in Black. Like, uh, uh, it's not the real Warhol. Just, yeah, just to it's... clarify there, there, mate. He was, yeah, um, okay. I think he was long gone by the time that movie kicked off. But I think it was Men in Black 2 or Men in Black. Maybe it was Men in Black, Black 3. I don't know. But there's there's like a scene of Andy Warhol where they're in Andy Warhol's apartment and they actually found it, find out that Andy Warhol's an alien. <laughs> yeah, okay. Which, which all, it all makes sense. It's like, oh, it does. Now, I, now I get the art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, very cool. So, so tell me about what book we are actually talking about today. Mm, nothing to do with art. Although, the art no, of a conversation, I, 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 perhaps. Yeah, maybe the art of conversation. You're right, or maybe the art of talking. I think was mm. was one of the man's early um, exposés. So we're doing how to win friends and influence people by Dale wow. Carnegie. The original self help book. The original self help book. Or was was that um, as a man thinketh. The original self-help book, yeah, or Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, or or something <laughs> Sen- probably well, a couple Seneca, of thousand. Well, Seneca wrote a book on life or something, didn't he? That 
Yeah, the shortness of life. Yeah, that's got to be close to a self-helper. Yeah, that's it's oh, definitely getting into the space. Or you could go back to Harumbai or whatever in the Sanskrit <laughs> that was talking about all the different, um, you know, laws of living. But that's probably more religious. Well, to some degree, that's that's like a pursuit of, you know, the ultimate personal development, Lockie, hey? The original personal development. Now, yeah, the I'm original sure personal I, development. I'm pretty sure I um, absolutely butchered that, the name of that, but anyhow. Yeah, it, it sounds like but oh, either just, way, I'll probably let's just roll past it. Let, let's let's keep going. So, uh, Dale Carnegie, not to be confused with Andrew Carnegie, which was the 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 famous billionaire or you know the richest man. Actually, I don't even know if he made it to technically a billion dollars because inflation has totally whacked things out in terms of um, the value of money. But I was reading somewhere that he would be worth. To in today's money, close to a billion dollars. Oh, sorry, close to a trillion dollars. Let's let's get the, the zeros right. And he gave away something like three hundred billion dollars worth in today's money. So, you know, he still had a lot of money, but that's a lot he gave of money. Away a lot. Yeah. All right. Hammurabi. So, anyway. Hammurabi. Hammurabi. I googled it. Yeah. What, what's so. I, I, I don't even know if I've ever heard of Hammurabi. It's like this really old um, sort of uh, writings from Mesopotamia. So um, it's got some stuff about like, you know, eye for an eye sort of stuff and this kind of things, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Shit. This is, this is back in the real, you know, the real, the real days. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, this is this is full on. So yeah. after the aliens came, after or before the aliens? Now, well, <laughs> well, Andy Andy Warhol hadn't landed yet, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> so he was born in 1888. This guy um, in Maryville, and he was born into. And a family of impoverished farmers, basically. It was money was money was basically non-existent. And I think we used the term dirt farmer in one of our old one of our previous episodes. I can't even remember which one it was. Yeah. Hmm. You you'll will come to your mind soon, I'm sure, Lockie, but It was um, recent. Yeah. But one of one of your one of your like your initial interpretation of what a dirt farmer was is what it sounded like on this farm. Uh, so they, they, they struggled, they struggled big time and they, they didn't even just struggle for money, like to you know, go about getting education and things. They struggled for money to even put food on the table. They, they, they were, you know, primary producers of food and they were struggling to get food. Uh, so that it, this was, this was tough times for them. Yeah. So seriously. yeah, crazy. But I think this was, this is, this wasn't a, you know, this wasn't a rare thing. This is just a, this is pretty prevalent. And so it's a sign of times changing, uh, you know, certainly, certainly for a portion of, of people, uh, but let's not get into that. So, uh, he was eventually throughout his, you know, so he, he basically lived on the farm, worked on the farm, did the farm life. 
but he did eventually make it to college and he couldn't afford to live where the college was, which was three hours out of where the farm was. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming it was it was Maryville that he was commuting to and just so happened that the farm was a three-hour horse ride each way. I was going to say car, but it wouldn't have been car, would it? No. Well, he saw his first car at the age of 12 apparently, but uh, like he didn't get to see one until the age of 12. And I think if you'd been living in, in the city, you would have seen it you know, pretty quickly um, given when he was born. But Yeah, right. Uh, so anyway, he had to ride to and from college every single day, which is a three-hour horse ride uh, because he couldn't afford to live in the, in the city. There's just no possibility of him being able to live in the city. And so... He would do that commute every day. He'd be wearing his clothes that he outgrew plus years ago because he couldn't afford to even buy a new pair of clothes. Because um, normally you picture like the clothes that you couldn't afford as being like too big because you, you're seeing them on on kids in the, you know when <laughs> they're portrayed in the movies. They're like three sizes yeah. too big. But this is like beyond that. This is after those kids have grown up a little bit more. It was, it was the picture in my head. Right. Uh, so anyway, he'd come home, he'd milk the cows, feed the hogs, and then after all the farm duties, etc., were completed, he would study by oil lamp until the wee hours of the morning. And then in winter, he'd have rude awakenings, you know, like three in the morning because the baby hogs, unless they were kept inside behind the furnace, they would die during the night. So they wouldn't have the next season's production you know because they were they were hog farmers it's just it's just a tough crazy life yeah crazy it's a real tough and this life. and even with all that going on they were struggling to get enough money to just subsist you know so he was he was pretty down in the dumps uh understandably about his situation and you know he decided that um in order for him to stop being ashamed of his situation. Um, and also because of because he wasn't living in the city, he was seen as an outsider. And, you know, this is this is also back thinking back back then, it's also times that there was a little bit more ju- oh, potentially a little bit more judgment about someone who comes from outside your town. Yeah, well, okay. I'm not sure I'm sure there's places that this still still goes on. And and so he felt like he needed to win something. He just didn't know what. He right. was he wasn't he wasn't very good athletically, yeah, apparently. So he just chose a speaking contest. And I don't I don't exactly know why he chose a speaking contest, but he just What is a speaking seen, contest? I've got no idea. I think you just need to give a speech. <laughs> is it like a debate or yeah. I don't even think it's a debate. I think you just like need to orate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's one of those things that's maybe faded, faded a little bit in, in today's age. Mind you, we do have debating, debating back. Did you have debating back in high school? Sort of thing. Uh, not where I went to high school. Mm. Well, it's definitely debating it. I think there was debating. There was definitely debating. I'd say so. Yeah, look, it's a it thing. Was, it was a thing. It's a thing. But it didn't seem to happen at uni. Anyway. Not for me. Not in engineering. I mean, if you did some something in humanities, I'm sure you did a, a fair bit of like that kind of thing. But yeah, not for us. So he 
decided he set his sights on this speaking competition. I think it's because it's they get exposed. So like for I think they used to get applauded or, you know, cheered cheered on. You know, you think of like being in the audience of a speaking competition and people are like, yeah, you know, getting on board the the speaker. Mm. Right. So, it's, so he found it's very his much calling. The, so he found his calling and, you know, he he got all excited about it and then started relentlessly practicing, you know, endlessly with all his spare time that he had when he wasn't studying by all lamp. I think he was practicing on his commutes, on his horse rides, his three-hour horse rides. And uh, he – and even when he was like feeding the pigs and different things is what I spoke about. And he just – with all this practice, he was time and time again. And so he became really depressed right. uh, and so under pressure from all the work he was doing on the farm, all the study he was needing to do, the lack of sleep, you know, failing this one thing he'd set his sights on to try and win and as well as the shame of not having money to be able to even afford to do anything or live in the city and have any friends. Uh, he, I think he, there was a point where he got to the point of, you know, wanting to commit suicide, um, which is just, you know, really, really sad circumstance. And the really sad reality of it is, you know, in this situation, if he had gone further, this is this is like someone's life's work that you won't get to see potentially. And mm. I just think about all the all the times, yeah, you know, sorry to throw this down into a, a depressed state, but it's just you think about all the potential times that happens. That's crazy. Oh yeah, it's a big problem more than cut, ever. Cut now. short. Yeah, well, particularly at the moment, but we're not going to talk about COVID. So he won um, eventually. I don't know how it kind of happened. Stars aligned, and then one day he ended up winning one of these competitions. You know, after just continuing these batterings, and after he won that competition, he basically didn't lose, and he right. won everything. He just—it's almost like he was building this like this pot of knowledge and this pot of, you know, developing his craft. It's like he struck the 10,000 hours mud of, you know, mastery, <laughs> 10,000 hours. And so eventually people started actually begging him to teach them how to, how to speak like he does. So right. he kind of, he kind of eliminated a lot of these pillars of that were causing him pain and anguish and depression uh, just with the one domino of winning, you know, that initial, couple of got his confidence speak. up got his confidence up yeah and so then he finished finished college he did a, a number of different things again because so when he finished college he didn't continue on with the speaking stuff he was doing he just um he became a salesman he started selling various things like courses he started selling bacon and soap he because of he was a traveling salesman essentially he'd have to use a freight train to travel places because he couldn't afford the tickets for the passenger trains um and he'd be he'd be training up to like 100 miles a day on these trains God. yeah and it wouldn't have been quick either <laughs> no it wouldn't yeah it wouldn't have been super quick and the other, yeah. So the and so the other thing is, because times were tough in general, sometimes people couldn't even pay for the orders that they'd made that they'd placed. So, 
which which put him in a very difficult circumstance because he he would have to then make the order from his company to go, you know, such and such wants all this bacon or all this soap or whatever it is and then you'd rock up with all this soap or all this bacon or whatever and they wouldn't be able to pay for it. Um, So he'd have to, what he would typically do was he would basically trade some of their stock and then get some of their stock and then sell it off his own back, sell all their stock off off his own back uh, to other people and then use that money to pay for the stock to his company. So he became a he became a bit of a master salesman by the sounds. And he was reading all the books on sales and he was also learning to play poker with Native Americans uh, at the time. Which is a This is such an adventurous life. It's crazy. Um uh he did a he did a lot of other things too. Uh and like, for example, we joined the World War One. In you know, sorry, he joined the U.S. Army, and then he um, was stationed somewhere for during World War One. Um, and you know, obviously had some experiences there. And then eventually, after you know, after World War One had ended, and he was actually working as a car and truck sales salesman, uh, he decided he'd had enough of doing all this salesman work and he really wanted to pursue this passion for writing he and he didn't care about the money he just he just thought i've lived on nothing i now's the time to pursue this passion so he thought how can i do this um and he said to support himself he would he would teach in an and he wanted to know what he could teach he came up with public speaking so then he had to convince YMCA, which was obviously some, you know, a training center at the time there, uh, wherever he was living, to bring on a public speaking course. So he persuaded them to do it. And then essentially he spent the next two decades pursuing this. So he was doing his writing all during the day and then he would do these these public speaking courses of a night time. Uh, and that became his, you know, very much the the inflection for his for his life's work. Yeah, and right. so by, you know, this guy that had essentially not been off the farm for, you know, all of his childhood to some degree, uh, by the 1930s, he had travelled, remember he was born in 1888, so he had travelled to Hong Kong, Hammerfest, into the Arctic, all kinds of, you know, crazy, crazy experiences. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so then... There's 1936 rolls around and that's when he released his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, the book of today. And during his lifetime, it sold 5 million copies. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So we've obviously skipped like there's, there was a lot of stuff that went on during his, you know, the crafting years, but. You know, a lot of it was just spent gradually iterating up his courses, gradually iterating up his books. I think he's written 11 books and many, many, many booklets, like mini books for yep. for his courses and things. Uh, so on his courses, um, it was it was in Snowball, the Warren Buffett biography that Warren, this is like a pivotal point in Warren's life doing one of Dale Carnegie's courses. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, and... 
I actually just brought up the quote. He said, I don't have my diploma from the University of Nebraska hanging on my office wall, and I don't have my diploma from Columbia University either, but I do have my Dale Carnegie graduation certificate proudly displayed. That $100 course is the most important degree I have. So fairly uh, pretty good praise from a fairly successful person there. Sounds like sounds like he was like an early Tony Robbins or something, you know. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's even the title of his book and some of the point stuff in it is just super clickbaity. Oh, it is. Like, it, is. it was, it was he, clickbait before clickbait was even considered being a thing. Before the person, before the person who coined the term was fucking born. Yeah, yeah, he was already doing it. So, mm. uh, and so. Um, well, to, to give you an idea, mate, on the kind of marketing perspective back then, there was a course that he did in like 1935 and in the in the New York paper, the newspaper, he literally just had an ad that just said, learn to speak effectively. And then the next line was prepare for leadership. And this was the time that, you know, 20% of the population because of the, the great, 20% of the population was on government support and you know, huge unemployment, not enough money, but the course was just absolutely jammed to the rafters. And he, he ran multiples of these courses. So Yeah, right. This, see, this is this is before everyone was keyed into the the idea of clickbait and not to yeah. not to listen to it. Yeah, okay. So but anyway, he's he's clearly he's clearly done wonders and he's spoken in front of the royal family during his life. Um and he built up this big training institute, which is where Warren Buffett ended up doing that that course that he spoke about. So, 1955, he died of Hodgkinson's disease, and at the age of 66. Uh, but since then, there's been an estimated 30 million copies of his books sold, which which puts it in you know, the absolute top echelons of nonfiction books of all time. Stratospheric success. Mm. Yeah, what an interesting story. Very interesting story. So tell me so about the, the book, Lockie. Well, the, yeah, I mean, the book itself, kind of its title tells you kind of what it's about. I wonder if, <laughs> I wonder if, we, wonder if we sucked anyone in with the title today. You know, I don't know was like, I really want to influence and make win some friends. friends. Yeah, win friends. Sorry, it's not make friends, it's win friends. Yeah, which is, again is a doesn't. It's weird, but you know, hey, it's it's from back in the day. Um, but there's obviously a lot of gold in this, and I think the idea of a lot of the the um, the stuff in the book has kind of just become part of normal. I wouldn't say normal, but it's like very known rules about interacting with people that everyone kind of takes for granted as something that you've you know grown up with came from this book, you know. Uh, that was something I noticed when I was reading it and mm. it would have definitely been quite revolutionary when it was written. But it's still got a lot of application. There's some things that also probably don't work anymore, I think. I'm really interested to hear that. Yeah, okay. So it's basically broken up into four main parts. Um so the fundamental techniques in handling people, 
and these are just kind of some really high-level rules like don't criticise, condemn or complain, give an honest and sincere appreciation of people and arouse in the other person an eager want. Um, can, you, can you translate that into 2020 language, Lockie? No. Nah. That last one. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, I think that the last one is the one that's, I mean, that's tricky, but... I think I don't really know what that means truly. I mean, I think it means, I suppose, I don't know. You tell me. Well, it's like it's like you you make the, the simple version is make others want something. But like the, the underlying current of that is make others want something that you also want. Yeah, because I was you know? why, why I'm confused about this is this part, and this probably comes back a bit later in the book, I think is like, is that about motivating what's inside the person um, inherently or putting on them a feeling of, I suppose, um, you know, what you want insert that motivation through your words in someone else and bring it out of them. That's the thing. Um, mm. I would say it's probably the former. I think that he's, his ideas really aren't about forcing things onto other people as such. It's more about kind of avoiding a lot of it's kind of about if you're going to have conflict, do it in a, um, in a clever and um, more subtle way than just being mm. a batter, battering ram, I think, is probably part of it. Like I'd say he, in, he invented the shit sandwich from what I could tell reading this, <laughs> the compliment, the bad thing, and then <laughs> you end with the compliment. Um, I love the, the old shit sandwich. Didn't, didn't, <laughs> yeah. didn't, they, didn't they get like myth busted by someone? Don't know. I'm sure it did. Probably. So next six ways to make people like you. So, so hang that, on. That's some uh, clickbait. Hang on, hang on out. So just I, I had a I had a quote prepared for the the arouse the arouse in another person. Right. And I will read it out because it can, it can sound quite manipulative. So he says, looking at the other person's point of view and arousing in him, because they only really refer to him, uh, I think back you know, back when the book was written, uh, an eager want for something is not to be construed as manipulating that person so that he would do something that is only for your benefit and his detriment. Each party right. should gain from the negotiation. So I guess he sees every every interaction as a negotiation. Yeah, it's, it's a win-win thing. And then mm. so the second part's really about relationships and connecting with other people. The third bit, how to win people to your way of thinking is more around negotiating, I think. And the fourth part's about leadership, um, how to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment. And I'd say uh, my comment around that was kind of how to lead in a subtle way. Any concepts there, I think, um, kind of remind me of kind of the idea of coaching now that's mm. quite um, popular but then some of them also struck me as avoidant um, which I don't think works as well now so we can crack yeah. into that I, 
I tend, yeah, I, I tend to agree, mate. But the thing that really struck me, so I read the the nineteen thirty six, I think, version of the book. Sorry, no, I didn't. That's a lie. I read the nineteen eighty one version of the book. Mm-hmm. So there's there was like a big overhaul done to the book in in yeah night which was released in 1981, which is apparently the one that um, people say to read. I'm not sure why. Uh, but you have you read the 2000s version. Yeah, so that was the version I read and it's quite, it's quite a bit more up to date. Um, yeah. So it's got kind of references to the internet and social media and things like that, among other more relevant examples but it still runs the same excuse me it still runs through the same kind of chapter structure and and talks to the different concepts yeah because one of the one of the struggles that i had going through the 81 version was it wasn't just the examples because you can you can see an example it's like you know if he's referring to like a typist you know dealing with your typists in the office and giving them some criticism on a mistake on misspelling a word or something. Like they're, they're totally no, irrelevant today. Yeah. Don't just uh, fire your, your secretary. <laughs> Give them uh, encouraging words, you know. Yeah. But, but like it, it, it really framed up how much times have changed Uh you know, since when this book was written. But if you, I, I felt that you could then immediately dismiss, you could very quickly dismiss some of the ideas. But I felt that once you kind of dug dug a little bit deeper into what was actually being said, a lot of it still had a lot of applicability to today. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. Look, and my earlier comments are not to be construed as there's nothing good in this book. It's absolutely packed with the, fundamental rules of um, sort of building relationships. And I think if you're any any sort of management leadership or if you're a business owner, business is relationships, <laughs> I reckon. Yeah, totally, totally. Really, um, you struck on something earlier, Lockie, about there, there was this real avoidance of conflict. And I think, I think certainly back, yeah, going back decades, decades ago, that was much more pronounced. I think people were just generally less direct. Like you read, there were some letters throughout the book and they were just talking around things. Like they're talking very, you know, obviously with a lot much more um, eloquent language than what we probably use today in writing yeah. an instant message across Slack to someone. How good, are, how good are letters from back in the day? They're like yeah. poetry almost, you know. We, we lost all that. We never, you know, now we're basically going back to hieroglyphics. <laughs> yeah, emojis. <laughs> we're, re- we're regressing. <laughs> we are too. We, and we put no thought into them either. We just sent a couple of emojis and it's like the emojis are representing emotions that we're feeling because we haven't <laughs> thought about it at all. <laughs> yeah. See, see being, be, back, back then also the the value, like the price of paper was also a lot higher and you, you probably, mm. you know, paid more attention to, to how much of that you were, you were using and, and wasting. Hmm. Interesting. Something, something to bear in mind. So uh, one, of the, one of the things that has clearly faded is this like indirectness 
And so there was a few principles throughout the book, um, you know, like call attention to people's mistakes indirectly, ask questions instead of giving direct orders. And the only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. So I think there's still some truth that can be gleaned from these, but I also think there's like, if, if you are too indirect with people, you know, in, in the, particularly in this today, people don't read between the lines as much. You know, you, you read some of those letters and they're almost cryptic. You're like, I don't even know what he's pointing to as being the, the problem here. Uh, it's funny because that's now what um, some people have that uh, problem when cross-culturally when doing business with um, Japan and China. That's mm. that their business culture or culture in general perhaps is, is much more subtle. Yes. But the US in particular is more blunt, isn't it? Very much is, yeah. Well, that was one of the big things out of out of Shoe Dog. When um when Phil Knight was dealing with the Japanese, he, he had to like just he didn't even understand what was even happening in his negotiations initially. You couldn't <laughs> and they would walk out of the room as though no deal had been struck and then a couple of days later he'd find out that they had struck a deal. He's like, Oh, we did strike a deal. very different Mm. very very different but for him to be for this book to be well let me put this to you there must have been because he's talking about doing more being a little bit more indirect being a bit more don't call people out in front of other people you know criticize in in private um, praise in public sort of so for this book to have landed in the way it did, those things must have been relatively new. So maybe there was a lack of um, kind of, you know, subtlety or around the way people dealt with others. But if they, if it was, they were just screaming at people perhaps or something like that, you know. Yeah, I think... Well, it feels like things were generally more indirect, but when you moved into an organisation, there was this very, very hierarchy, yeah, very hierarchical in nature of it. Yeah, it's like much, you know, respect you for the boss and all, you know, definitely. Yeah, and everyone, everyone, like even even like a a level above you, there's just this absolute, you know, servitude, basically mm. to to yeah. to those people. Yeah, it's a good point. And, well, let's crack more of the specifics of some of his ideas and we can kind of have that lens over it as we go. Um, I guess for me to pick out the six ways to make people like you, Bang. as horrible Just a title as that in. is, I think it's a, it, to me this is probably the best bit of the book, I reckon. Um, I mean... So, so and, to, to and tell me, tell some, me, tell me, Lockie, tell me, Lockie. Since reading this, have you made some people like you? I hope so, because it's getting pretty lonely over here. So, let's see how we go. So, I mean, a lot of these are very kind of somewhat obvious, but they do have quite a deeper kind of meaning. But so, first one: become genuinely interested in other people. 
So in a conversation, care more about what the others or you know, than talking and trying to impress someone yourself. And he kind of talks to the fact that, you know, people are inherently self-interested and you want to feel important. It's like part of your emotional need as a human. But it really, it always reminded me of this kind of, it reminded me of this thing I'd heard about Bill Clinton um, where an English journalist had an encounter with Bill and um, I think she perhaps also had an encounter with his opponent. But she said of Bill, he made you feel for those short moments that you were the this is probably pretty creepy now Now that when you think about Bill, but let's go with it anyway. He made you feel for those short moments that you were the only woman in the world that he'd, ev- that he'd ever met and he'd never met anyone as interesting or as lovely as you. I'm sure he did that to a lot of people, but he's known as a very charismatic bloke. And then I think um, in, in another way kind of, I was saying when I walked away from talking to his opponent, I thought that they that he was the most interesting person I'd ever met, but Bill made me feel like I was the most interesting is the kind of the moral of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people who are genuinely interested in you, you feel a connection to. Um, I, think, I think the word you've hit on them, Lockie, is genuine because – people people might you know you might read that on like a uh you know in a personal development course or something or you know one of these head big headlines you know show curiosity in other people or, or you might get a um, might have a training session at work about how to manage others and it's like show curi- show curiosity in 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 your employees or something like that but you see, you see like you see the kind of half-assed curiosity it's like i'm just saying this because i know i need to say this to kind of break break some ice here and that's like that's like a counter it's like it pushes it back even further the other way it like creates a resentment around it yeah it's so it needs to be yeah, like from horrible. a genuine place yeah so like yeah but it feels kind of almost weird talking about this in a way because it's like it feels kind of disingenuous to say yes. be interested in others okay i'll switch that on you know like <laughs> you've either got to have it or you don't don't you but anyway it's well um, i think okay you can put more effort let's, into it right let's 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 bookmark this just for a little bit later because okay. i want to come back to that all right okay good well i'm gonna hit you with number two smile <laughs> so I love this one, and I think it's really underappreciated, particularly at work, um, is that people just, you know, we've never been busier apparently. Um, Certainly the amount of stuff coming at you is um, full on, the world's moving quickly. Um, There's a certain confidence it takes to smile at someone else and not be so serious, particularly at work. and I love that. I think it's awesome and I think that not enough people do it and it's something I'll try and remember not to be so, not that I'm super dour, but try and uh, keep the fun and, and it puts people at ease. And it's interesting, you can even kind of hear it in people's voice when they're smiling. 
there's a lot to it, I think. Yeah. Um, the example he gives in the book here is about picturing, you know, just picturing like a baby. When a baby smiles at you, there's no bullshit in that smile. It's it's just, it's like, if you can imagine like a big grin on a little baby looking at you, it's just, it's nothing but pure joy. And he says, that's a smile. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not this kind of like this thing that you've like almost had to put like a couple of hooks in the side of your mouth to draw up on you had like plastered on or Botox into your cheeks. It's like a real smile. People, people that smile a lot have friendly faces. I actually think that it, it kind of does something to your face. Probably gives you wrinkles in the right direction. You know, it's like these micro wrinkles in the right direction. Everything's kind of facing upwards. Mm, yeah. But our, our brain, our brains are like hardwired for smiles, mate. Like if you smile at someone versus if you frown at someone, if there's no words or anything, you, you're totally hardwired around how you feel off the back of that situation. Well, yeah. this was in thinking fast and slow too. Uh, mm. That they did experiments where people do frown and furrow their brows and then do another activity versus smiling and. And there's different effects that it has on just the way you you think, which is, mm. I mean, there's so much we don't know about all that, but uh, it seems to me that it can't be anything but a good thing. So uh, just a, a nice little quote on the smile, mate. Your smile is a messenger of your goodwill. Your smile brightens the lives of all who see it. To someone who has seen a dozen people frown, scowl, or turn their faces away, your smile sun breaking through the clouds that's from the book jeez it's full on um number three remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language do you mm. how do you go remembering names i am terrible <sighs> i i meet i meet someone and the name has bounced off my ear it didn't even go into my ear it bounced I off doubt. my ear before it went in how it's hard i don't know why it's like mm. i'll remember this person's name and then bang have you got any tricks uh, uh i know that there's see i i i never forget a face like never ever forget a face um or what someone looks like or where i've even even where and how i've associated been associated with that that person but for some reason the name the name just disappears into into the the dark reaches of my memory clearly sometimes just particularly particularly when you put on particularly when you put on the spot like you're passing by you know johnny who oh. you haven't seen in 16 years and you're just like call him mate mate how are you yeah. and then you can end up you can have a whole conversation just sent mate yeah um and depending on how the, how you say mate and as long as you don't delay it, I think you can make it sound like you haven't forgotten their name <laughs> and then there's just wait no, for someone else to bring it up. There's no doubt knowing people's names is very powerful. Yeah, but uh, it's not the way It's not the way to their uh, deepest and uh, farest reaches of their heart. Mate. As Carnegie would say. So it was an interesting example. I used to work at a company called Fulton Hogan and there was 
a guy who worked there called Jules Fulton. And he was, I think, the grandson of one of the founders or maybe even the son, I'm not sure. And everyone had every reason to hate this guy, you know, like kind of born into the royalty of the family sort of thing. Were you, were you one of them, Lockie? No, no, it's more like, you know, particularly in Australia, tall poppy syndrome, you know, mm. he's mm. obviously mm. absolutely minted. And, you know, we, I was in this training with a heap of labourers and um, myself and a couple others and, and Jules came in. Everybody loved him, you know, and he just went around to everyone and asked them how their kids were by names, you know, how's this, how's your property, how's this, and I was like, okay, this guy understands people, you know, and he just yeah. genuinely gave a shit and it was so nice to kind of experience that. And kind of something else that struck me on this on this kind of uh, line was um, one of my business partner, John, his sister worked at Australian Super and um, I think she left the job, I'm not sure why, got another one or something. And on one of her last days she got an email from the CEO, this is a big company, and she'd met this guy once. They're, they're, they're like Australia's biggest super fund, I think. Yeah, and, and yeah. she'd met the CEO once and he wrote an email saying, look, really sorry to see you go. I enjoyed, you know, meeting you and I wish your family all the best and this sort of thing. I'm just like, man, that's classy, you know. Mm. And I've told like 20 people that. So um, it certainly struck a chord with me. I don't know why, but it's those kind of, it's actually caring, isn't it? It's pretty basic, yeah. but that sort of effort's very uncommon, I think. Yeah, you've got the time to go out of your way to to wish people well. Or even to yeah. remember who they are. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, correct. For someone at that level who might have th- a thousand employees or something. Yeah, well, probably more than that, mate. Yeah, mm. t- t- totally, totally. Um, do you... Okay, so because because we're now seeing you know this things become more connected and you know we're we're dealing more on digital platforms and things you know like Slack like Microsoft Teams all of those. Do you think we're getting maybe better at remembering people's names or not? And the reason I, I wonder is because you're always seeing their name pop up. You know, it's always. It's always say, always Lockie, and then a face of Lockie next to it. Assuming you're not the person who puts like just like a cartoon of yourself on your profile. <laughs> um, I'd say yes for that, but there's still so many encounters with people that you're not in that kind of circle with. That I'd say it's not enough to kind of close the gap. I don't think. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. So next one, be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Um, very similar to number one. But I was wondering at what point does this need to be balanced out because I feel like I actually don't talk about myself too much and avoid when people ask me questions. I'd rather talk about them. But I actually think that I've found that that limits connection in many ways because I'm not letting them in enough or telling stories. So 
what's the balance here? Okay, so I th- I think, mate, I think he's, I think the lens of this book is very much from like a business, not just running a business, but like building a business or selling or or something like that, and. It just, it just seems that that's the way because that's his experience. His experience is very much from like a sales perspective. He's been dealing with people, you know, big corporates and all that stuff or people that have maybe passing passing moments, you know, it's like a two-minute rea- two interaction with someone. And so I think there's that lens that runs through the book. And so I, and, and so I think that as a principle – when you've come across someone that you haven't seen in 10 years, rather than you taking up that entire two minute interaction, just talking about, you know, how you, how you bought a new car last week and rather fan out about their life a little bit more, I think is, is great. And I think that's a, that's a great little thing to, to do. I think what you're maybe talking about is, is maybe on deeper relationships with people uh, maybe people you might be with every day, even then. I think that's totally, yeah. To- I think you're totally right. It's it's almost like, mate. Like arguably, it could be to the point of being selfish, even. You know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. To not to not share more more inside. Yeah. Sorry to call you out on on microphone, mate. No, that's <laughs> fine. I'm I'm happy. You're not really following the rules, but. Um... <laughs> That's yeah. right. We're going with the more Ray Dalio version. You'll give me an indirect, indirect berating later. <laughs> That's right. I'll write you, you can write me a letter. A letter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get a typewriter or something. Um, last two, I'll breeze through them. Talk in terms of the other person's in- interests. I'm a big, big fan of this one. Um, figure out what people are in and and find out about it because it's cool to learn about and that's what they love talking about so it can really spark up a conversation. And lastly, make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. So very, very common thread running through them but and um, but still as true today I would have thought as when they were written. Yeah. I, I tend to... I tend to think like, that the the thread that runs through all of them is all this stuff needs to be genuine, and the only and I, I feel like the only way that you, it can be genuine is if you're a little bit less self interested, mm. you know. And to be a bit less self interested means you need to like be more in touch with yourself and reduce you know reduce that ego essentially because if if you're like if you're asking someone a question because yeah you've learned it in a in a management course but in in your head you don't even see yourself thinking about it in your head you're saying i can't wait to start telling him about this car I bought last week you know then it's not going it's not going to go well because you're not really listening or you're not really asking asking things or you're not really smiling at them so there's nothing worse than fakeness i think is the one of the big things that comes out of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've got a question then. It's like, okay. 
So when you look at a group photograph, who is the first picture you look at? I reckon I look at myself. Mm. I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion everyone does. I'm just going to make a blanket statement there. And, and that, was, that, was, that was a question he posed in the book. But mm-hmm. even, if, even if you, you know, have had a, a, a dis- dissolution of your ego, you know, so you've, you've been enlightened through some extreme Buddhist practice, I still think that that enlightened person is still going to look at their own their own self first, even if it's just a, a glance, you know, just just for that just for that second. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and no that, doubt. And so that's that's like this that idea that you were talking about before that you know, the, you know, there is there is nothing that you can that you can do. Every single person is always going to be the most interested in themselves. Uh, I, I think, and so, like it's it's like you're you're, you're eternally interested in in, in yourself, um, and what 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 you really want. So, you know, that's that's the reality of it. So, I think I think in order to like get past that, there's this there's there's like a journey of dealing with, um, you know, coming to some of these more. Or, or just coming to the the realization of of having an ego, you know, and so this this starts to get spiritual, and then a little bit, you know, starting to move into like the the woo woo of meditation and presence and mindfulness and all these things, which are, which are now starting to really spike their way up in in you know in certainly in Western society, but have been around for eons in in Eastern philosophy. Mm. And so I think there's a there's a path to take there putting that ego aside a little bit. Yeah, and it's actually kind of selfish to talk about the other person because it will benefit you in the relationship. So it's kind of a win-win because the other person's going to enjoy talking about themselves um, for the most part. Um, and you'll also win on the back end because you'll build a strong bond with them. So it's kind of an interesting it does kind of you have to put a put aside the first order consequence of you know that internal need to be relevant um, to get that relevance that you want in the in the sense of influencing the other person. I think that's kind of what he's saying in there, in a way. Yeah, and and there there is like a there is like a contrived feel that runs through a lot of this stuff, but I think if you if you part ways with that, just just for a minute, like you park park that at the door, and if you started to actually do some of this stuff in you know in your day to day, I think you and it just becomes you know eventually it just becomes this is your your immediate reaction. It's second nature. You well, know? yeah, it comes down to intent too. I think. Yeah. You know, like I reckon that in in many ways, if you come at this with a intention of trying to build better relationships with people which is like the spice of life effectively then that's all right if you spicy spicy life arnold um but if you're actually you know use kind of how to use it to manipulate others then it's got a lot more of a sinister feel 
And I think I think people are are more tuned in than the the ones with malintent realize. Mm. The the only oh, yeah. challenge is the ones with malintent maybe don't get called out enough, you know, <laughs> or with a with a kind of yeah, it's a, that fake intent. Like if you see like someone that's a few few levels up in the organization and they you know they they ask you this yeah this fake question Gee, it sounds like i've got a real chip on my shoulder here this episode lucky um been burnt a few times by the yeah. the boss's boss have you yeah and then so and so you just gotta <laughs> do you want to talk about it <laughs> we can talk about it we can talk about it later <laughs> um so the yeah and I think like there's no reason someone shouldn't just call that out then and there. It's like, well, are you, do you actually want to know or you don't? Imagine that as a response. Jeez. That'd be great. Wouldn't it? <laughs> well, you just start talking about something really random to see if they're actually listening, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I think I've been in situations where someone's like asked you that question and then, then like – in the motion of like reaching into their hand, into their pocket to like pull out their phone and and it, they've only been, you know, they haven't been listening at all, but they're really not listening by the time they've kind of reached in and pulled out their phone to like bring it here or bring it up to here. Sometimes I have to say I, I'm not good at this because I'll want to know at the start, but then I'll be so stressed about something else that I'll drift off mm. and it must make the other person feel terrible, you know. And yeah, it's one of them. It's a weakness that I I'm a bit of a daydreamer sometimes. Yeah, like you get you get you kind of start abstracting out other other thoughts. Yeah, or worrying about something or that kind of thing. Do you think that's like a symptom of our like scatterbrain age? You know, like scatterbrain technology driven. You know, we're skipping from one thing to another. Like, do you reckon back when they were penning letters to one another? This was as much of a problem because I think that's I think that's pretty common, Lockie. I suspect a lot of people do that. Perhaps it's hard to know. I mean, the weird thing about those times, whenever I read about like Benjamin Franklin or you know one of these old school biographies, is like you just like I'm worried if I don't hear from <laughs> if you didn't hear from you like your partner for a day. You'd be like, "What's happened? You know, mm. where are they? Are they okay?" Um, these, and you know, people would go away for months and not hear from their significant others or their families, and or they'd receive a letter that their child had died or something because you know infant mortality was so high back then. But you couldn't just fly home to be with them. Um, you know, there's this real feeling of the unknown. You know, what's happening? We don't really suffer from that much anymore. Well, okay. So here's a, here's a here's a personal example of that. Right? Recently, so because we moved we moved overseas just before COVID happened. Brought times now. Uh, just before COVID the disease happened, that won't be named that yeah. shan't be named. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I ordered a SIM card because I wanted to keep my old phone number. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, I'll just get it express mailed across to to France from Australia. 
And obviously, you know, COVID struck and the, the short story of it is uh, it took six months to get here. Oh, wow. Yeah. But this, this is the thing, right, is, you know, at, at the end of the day, I didn't really care. Like it, it actually, I was surprised how little it actually, it mattered in the end, you know, because you've still got, you've still got like Wi-Fi access. So you can, you can jump on, you can do now do phone calls over Wi-Fi, whatever. But, but like initially being so annoyed about it, I was like, this is unbelievable, you know, that this is happening. Whereas this was just a, this was just part of the day-to-day life. You know, as you said, people would be hearing about their, their son or daughters killed in war. Um, via a letter that that was sent three months prior, you know, yeah, it just it's completely completely different perspective. How do you feel when you're on a plane? So mm-hmm. your phone doesn't work. You're on a plane. What's the feeling? Relief. Me too. So there's something so nice about being on a plane and not having access to the internet. Although, and I noticed that on my on a recent trip, um, you could get access to Wi-Fi. Mm. I think you. It felt like the first couple of minutes were free, or you might have had to pay for it straight up. But it's creeping in, and I'm just like, I don't want that. I want the. This is the one place. This tin box. We're flying through the air, where I have no choice but to just not. Deal with this. At every mind. other point, the stress is almost that you can, but you're not. But in the air, there's just no choice. Yeah, there's no choice. I like that. I really like that. Yeah. So I wonder if that was felt in some ways. So yeah, and then there's the challenge. How how are we going to go when we've got you know the global the global net or the global Wi-Fi setup, which is, you know, the, the big missions of Facebook and Google and, you know, all the, all the other companies on the, on the same mission. I think Virgin's doing it as well. Um, yeah. yeah it's ine- I, it's kind of feels inevitable. Doesn't yeah. It? I, I like, I like the idea of, I've heard of like Sundays, like and something something we're trying to trying to do a little bit more is is spending your Sundays disconnected. Um, You're bringing I, back the Sabbath. Yeah, the Sabbath. Is that the Sabbath Sunday? <laughs> yeah, I like it. They they were onto something. Yeah, I think they were. This is this is back to that religious religious conversation we're having earlier, mm. Lucky. So bring bring just bringing this back onto onto the tracks, you know. There, there was quite a few principles throughout the book that were that were focused on on ego. So, like one of them was, if you're wrong, admit it quickly and empathetically. So it's like, don't just dismiss it as, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was wrong, move yeah. on. It was, yeah, I was genuinely wrong there. You know, yeah. What can I do? This is a big one from from our our man who gets named every episode, Taleb. He's he loves this. He's, he thinks that all people should do this when do you think they are he wrong. Does it? Well, I've seen him do it. So yeah, okay, all right. He, he says he says that people should do it in public. If they if they fuck something up, they should oh, they should in the publicly yeah. yeah publicly yeah shame themselves. I feel like this is PR. Wow, 
this is the biggest PR lesson that people could take who are celebrities or something. It's like mm. immediate sincere apology kills pretty much the whole thing uh, to yeah. some extent. Yeah, it's like it, it, it completely like, yes, it might cause a, like a little spike in in some of the, the reactions that you might get. You might lose a couple of fans, but but you stop the forest fire. You stop the like the burning press for the next six months talking about nothing, you know, talking about this random conspiracy theory or mm. whatever it was. I, I totally agree with you, Matt. Um, the other principle was let the other person save face. Mm. So you know, instead of ins- instead of like, you know, instead of you reprim- reprimanding me here on air about me calling you out earlier, do it off air, Lockie. It's a much better way to do it. it makes me save face. Helps me save face. <laughs> I think this one's um, important because I've often felt like I'm too soft, but I think this book's given me a little bit more confidence in my approach like I often feel like if someone's made a just a mistake they don't really need you to to double barrel them for it if there's some kind of willful negligence or unethical behavior I mean you're kind of talking about something different but most of the time they know they've stuffed it up yeah one one of the um one of the big notes that I found when I was going back through the book, just going back through my notes, one of the things I kept seeing written was like, except for the wrongdoers, you know, people who are like intentionally causing harm or being negligent or something like mm. that. And that, and they're the ones that you should definitely call out, I think. So I think there's, yeah, there's, it's almost like a, this focus on like garnering relationships with people. And then if there's people that are trying to cause chaos, uh, yeah, or, or willful evil and things, then, yeah, call them out. 100%. So the other, the one, the, the, the last thing was just about, yeah, being genuine. So it's about there's, there's the reducing of the egos and there's doing it genuinely. And um, there's a quote in the book, flattery is counterfeit. And like counterfeit money, it will eventually get you into trouble if you pass it to someone else. Hmm. So. Yeah, it comes from a, yeah, I kind of, I kind of get what he's saying there. So should I give you, should I hit you up with the, the closing quote? Hit us up, Lockie. Okay. All right. You can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. I love it. Good one to remember in the uh, social media era. So. Yeah, so less social, you know, Insta, Insta story post today then, hey? <laughs> well, I mean, got to keep the followers happy. <laughs> 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 All t- 12 of them. So... Love you, 12. Thank you. So on that note, uh, don't forget, actually, before we sign off, that you can find we 
all the videos of these episodes. So we we actually record videos for those listening. So check it out on YouTube. It's actually starting to build into quite a big body of work on there, which is kind of cool and, uh, and you know, we're pretty excited about. So check it out. And um, we've got a website too at abstractable.co, which we're still kind of working on, but it's uh, it's coming together. So check it out. Thanks, guys. Bye.